Father, as we come to you right now, I do want to thank you so much for our time together this evening, for the opportunity that we have to study your word. And Father, we always need your illumination. We always need your insight to be able to see what is here in your word. We do not want to study this book or any book in our Bible simply as a book of history, book of facts. We want it because it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. It is our rule and guide of faith. It is our food, our milk, our meat, our water. It's our source of life. And so I pray, Father, you would just open your Word tonight that we might see it for what it is. Father, for anybody that's in our room tonight for the very first time, I I pray that they'll feel right at home and welcome here in our study. For those of us who have been tracking right on through this now for these six nights together, once again, I ask that you would open your word to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as you notice there on your outline, I have a little bit of a review statement there. When we finished last Sunday night, we had looked at the scene in heaven as, as John was caused to be caught up into heaven, and the focus is on the throne. And he said he saw that one sitting on the throne, and we talked about the Godhead of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We also talked about the church in heaven. We talked about those 24 elders and listed those 14 pieces of evidence. But our time had slipped away, and I didn't get a chance to really deal with the four living creatures as directly as I might like to. And so what I'd like to do is just take a few minutes, go back to that moment, and and talk about those four living creatures, because they are going to come up several times in our letter, in our book, and I want us to be clear on who these living creatures are. And so if you have your notes from last Sunday night, good. If you don't, you can just jot a few things down there, maybe in the in the space on your study guide, and then you might want to transfer that information over to last week's study guide. So if you would go with, go back with me just for a few minutes to Revelation chapter 4 and verses 6, 7, and 8. Notice there. Now John's in heaven, focused on all the activity around the throne, and then it says, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now let's look at these. We talked about their description, and this is just some information that's on your sheet from last week. We call these living creatures, they have some similarities of cherubim and seraphim, and those are two different types of angels. Now there are different ranks of angels, but as far as types of angels, those basically are the two different types. These living creatures are four in number, and notice now they are living creatures. And the point that I want us to see there is that they are alive. In other words, they are not animated figures. They're not cartoon figures. They are not mannequins. They're not statues. They're not just standing there 
like some kind of mannequin. They are living creatures. But they are living, and but they are not people. They are creatures, but they are not animals, as we typically think of maybe of animals as creatures and creatures as animals. They have six wings. They are full of eyes. And the thing that I really want us to focus on is these faces, because that, that gets to be confusing. They each have a different face, a lion, a calf, some of your Bibles might have an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now, what do we have here? What do we have? What we have here are visible embodiments of the attributes of God. Now, what I want us to remember as we look at these different images and signs and symbols, remember, we're not trying to see what John saw so that we can take what John saw and reduce that to canvas and frame it and put it in our home as a piece of artwork. Some people have tried to do that. They've tried to take the book of Revelation and put it on print, put it in canvas to see it. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to understand what John saw. As Jesus has said on several occasions, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, what we have here then are visible embodiments of the attributes of God. In other words, let's look at these four creatures. The lion, when we think about the lion, we think about the lion as the king of the beast, the king of the jungle we, we typically think of. If you have ever watched or you're into the Chronicles of Narnia, then you know the image and the importance of the lion in that whole series of, of studies. The calf speaks of a, a beast of burden. The, it's the ox, it's the calf, it's, it's the, it's that beast that does, does a lot of work and carries a significant load. He's a beast of burden. The man face refers to intelligence and even humanity. The eagle actually speaks of omniscience. Now, as much as we think about the eagle and its tremendous wingspan and its ability to fly high into the sky, one of the unique attributes of the eagle is his keen insight, being able to see at great distance and, and has tremendous eyesight that God has given him. Now, as we see here then, we have these four living creatures who are there around the throne who have been uniquely created by God for the purpose of illustrating and visibly demonstrating the attributes of God. They are there around that throne primarily to do that plus to serve God and to do whatever He wills and commands that they do. In fact, we're going to see these four living creatures at work tonight in our study. Now to take this a little step further, until we get to heaven and our faith becomes sight, and we're going to see that throne, and we're going to see those streets of gold, and we're going to see heaven for all that it is, the best ability we have to understand the attributes of God and the power of God and authority of God is Jesus Christ Himself. He is God in human flesh. Now, one of the things as we think about, how, okay, then how do we know Jesus? The best way we know Jesus, some of the best texts we have to share with us and to give us insight about our Lord Jesus Christ are the four Gospels. The four Gospels were written by four men, uniquely called men of God, 
held under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who were called to write and chronicle the life of Jesus from four different perspectives. Sometimes people get a little hung up on the Gospels thinking why these guys, why they don't exactly match up in every moment. Well, these guys are four different guys writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting about that, they are allowed to write in such a way that their humanity is still coming forth, yet God is protecting these men so that what is put on print and for us to read is exactly what God wanted us to be able to read. And so if you have those difficulties of matching everything up and you've tried to do the harmony of the Gospels on your own, realize that these guys were not trying to put an unending woven message together. They were looking at Christ from different perspectives. Now with that as as kind of a backdrop, let's think about those four Gospels just for a minute and then we're going to move back into the book of Revelation. In the Matthew account, we see Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Matthew's account is an account written for the Jewish man. In fact, 13 times that I've counted, I might have miscounted, but 13 times in the Gospel of Matthew, we have this phrase or something very, very close to it, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. You see that over and over and over again throughout the letter. And so Matthew is writing that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. And we're going to come back to that here in just a minute. In the Mark account, we have Jesus as the suffering servant. He's the one who bore our sin on the cross. And Mark has a unique way of sharing. If you want to read the uh, most brief version of the four Gospels, it's Mark. I mean, you start reading in Mark, and then it's just, it's just fast-paced all the way. The shortest of the four Gospels, and he has the brief account. When we think about Luke, in Luke's account, Jesus is the Son of Man. The third living creature has the face of a man. And the words Son of Man speak of our Lord's humanity and His wisdom. Now, we know Jesus is 100% God, but He's also 100% man, and Luke presents Him as the Son of Man. In the John account, Jesus is the divine Son of God. And the eagle speaks of omniscience, the omniscience of God. And Jesus, of course, is all-knowing, and He has that omniscience. He sees everything and everywhere. So as we think about these four living creatures then, try not to make your or allow your mind to try to figure out what do they really look like. That's not the, That's not the goal. That's not why it's in print. The goal is to find out what was John communicating. We need to understand that and then go forward in faith. And so these four living creatures then stand there around the throne ready at any moment to serve the one on the throne. And in so doing, they they are visible embodiments of the attributes of God. And they we get a chance to see His glory and His power even through these four living creatures. All right, now let's go on back now and let's get to our study for this evening. Chapter 5 beginning at verse 1, as we look at this seven-sealed scroll. Now, notice we have here in chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Let's talk about this just for a minute. When we think about this seven-sealed scroll, it's been referred to and given several different descriptions. One particular description is it's called the title deed to the earth. 
Another person refers to it as the book of decrees. It is God's decree of the destiny of the world, about what's going to happen in the end, what's going to happen to this world. It is also viewed and been titled as God's last will and testament. Now, we know that God from the very beginning had a desire that, especially we see this in the, in the nation of Israel, that God wanted to be their king. He wanted to be their leader. And you remember that time in, in the Old Testament books where the people wanted a king, what, like all the other nations. That broke the heart of God. God wanted to be their king, and He wanted them to want Him to be their king, but they didn't want him to be their king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God, in his grace, gave them what they wanted, not what they needed. And they messed up over and over and over again. And you can read those accounts of those kings and how they messed up, how they sinned against God and how the nation would just be kind of on a roller coaster ride. They'd be back with God and they'd be away from Him and back with God and away from Him. And so what we find here is in this seven-sealed scroll, what's finally going to happen is the will of God and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on a world who has continued to reject and reject and reject His leadership, His sovereignty, His lordship, and rejecting our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we see these seals opened, it's going to be an exciting thing. Let's read the first five verses of this. Now, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, as as you have your outline there, I've given you most of the information and some space there, so you can just kind of fill in some information if you care to jot it down. But notice, first of all, there is the scroll. Now, John has been focusing on the one on the throne, just looking at him and the throne. And all of a sudden now, his attention is focused on the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, and he has this scroll in his hand. The right hand is a symbol of power. And so with power and authority, he's holding this scroll in his hand. The second thing you see is the contents. And it's interesting here, as John tells us, that this scroll is written on the inside and on the back. Now, of course, John's telling this kind of retrospect because it's all sealed up. But later on, he he realizes that it's got content on the inside, and that's typically the way a scroll was made. When you laid a scroll on a table or on a desk... You, you laid it down there and, and you, and you unrolled it and you read some and then you rolled some and you unrolled some and you just kind of marked, of course they read right to left and so that's, that's kind of the way they did that. But the idea of a scroll being written on the inside and on the back is significant. Several reasons why you might have a double scroll like that. One is because you're too poor to buy another scroll. 
Now this scroll would have been, this material that this scroll was made out of would have been either parchment or papyrus or leather. But regardless of what it was made out of, financial consistency or financial problems is not the Lord's problem. It's not that he didn't have enough money. So that that's not the answer at all. Another reason why you might write a scroll on the inside and on the back is you want all the information on one scroll. You wouldn't want to have a scroll and have a, a double story or, or a, a more a, a story larger than you could get on one scroll and then lose half the story. And so a lot of times they would do front and back to get the whole story on one scroll. Of course, the problem with that is if you lose that scroll, then you've lost the whole story. But that that's another reason why. But here's the situation what we have here. The reason why this scroll is written on the inside and the back, I believe, and I'll, this will become clearer as we get to, Rome, at the, get to Revelation chapter 12, is this is the full, complete, exhaustive account of the destiny of the world. And what we're going to have on the inside, we're going to have a telling of the story, and then we're going to flip the scroll over and the story is going to be retold. Now, this is one of the highest forms of writing that we still use today. Those of you that read the newspaper probably experience this kind of writing all the time. And here's what happens. The, uh, the, the newspaper writer gives you the story, maybe the full story, in about two or three paragraphs. And then as you read further into the account, you get more and more and even more detail. By the time you get to the end of the article, you know as much as the author wants you to know about that particular item. We see that in the book of Revelation. We're going to see details unfold. And as we travel through this letter, and this is one of the things I promised you early on in our study, I'm going to help you to know how to read this book so that as you understand how these different retellings unfold the story, and take you deeper and deeper and deeper into the message. And so the reason why we have this scroll written on the inside and the back is because it takes all that information to tell this complete story, and we'll get to that. And then notice it is sealed with seven seals. Now these seven seals that were used to seal up this scroll was simply the way to make sure that the scroll was securely kept bound together until it was time for it to be opened. In John's day, it was typical, it was normal, and in, in under Roman law, for legal documents, wills and testaments, to be sealed with seven seals witnessed by seven witnesses. And here we have another occasion, we have seen this on several occasions throughout this book, how Jesus takes a current, a contemporary geographical and, and, and just cultural truth and, and brings it into the story. We, we saw that in the Laodicean letter. Remember they had that eye school and he said go buy that eye salve and they had that tremendous manufacturing of, of fine black soft wool. He said get you some, get some spiritual clothes and he brings those, those kinds of images in. Here he's using that same kind of imagery and talking about this scroll that is sealed up and it is sealed in such a way that when each seal is broken, you see that portion of the book. And as it continues to be unfolded, then another seal has to be broken for the story to continue on. And each of these seals, in, and as they're opened up, we see more and more of the story. We're going to see four of those seals opened up. 
Notice also we have this strong angel in verse 2, or a mighty angel as is referred to in, in some of the translations. Now, this strong angel or this mighty angel speaks of his power, the power of his voice, the content of his message. It probably also refers to how the sound reverberated throughout the halls of heaven, as we might say. And so when he, when he shouted, when he spoke, he spoke with such power and authority. Look at what it says here. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worth, I and mean, you can just kind of imagine that sound going out and he's calling out to everyone that can hear, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And the, and the context there seems to indicate that as he said that, eventually the reverberation quit and nobody stepped forward. There wasn't anybody who had the courage to say, I can open it. I can do that. Now he's referring, of course, to angels to people, these four living creatures. None of these folks that we have talked about and studied so far were willing to say, I can open this scroll, I can loose its seals, and there was silence. And that, that takes us to the disappointment. And John said that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now here's what let me ask you to do this. Rather than taking each one of these things, why couldn't they look at it? Uh, why... What's it mean to be under the earth? Basically, under the earth is a euphemism refers to those, the abode of the dead. But, that, but the, the idea here really is to just understand this verse is saying nobody, no man, no woman, no, an, no angel, no living creature was able to unlock and open this scroll. And then the reaction of John, look at verse 4. John says, so I wept much. And the idea there, John just kept on weeping. He wept and he kept on weeping. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. We have here in John unfulfilled curiosity. But John was not just curious as to what was inside that scroll. He deeply wanted to know, so much so that he actually went into deep remorse and crying over the fact that no one was found worthy to open up this scroll. But then there are these tremendous words of reassurance. But one of the elders said to me, verse 5, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed. He is victorious, is, is the idea there. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now he's referred to, Jesus is referred to here as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Of course, we know this to be our Lord. And his authority to open the scroll comes from the fact that he has and he is triumphant. He is triumphant over the grave, over death. He's the, he's the victor. He's our Lord. He's our King of Kings. And that's why he is victorious. Well, John was weeping and maybe was even cupping his hands over his ears as this angel was calling out, who is worthy to open this scroll and to loose its seals? And when he looks up, look at verse six. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all 
the earth. John, in this crying, in this remorse, in this pain he's going through, all of a sudden looks up and there he sees this lamb. Now, of course, we know who this is. John the Baptist was one that said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we come to this idea and this truth about Jesus being the Lamb of God, we kind of have a study within a study here. And you see there in your notes three compelling reasons to worship our Lord. Now, I'm not saying these are the only reasons, but this particular context gives us three compelling reasons to worship our Lord, why He is worthy of our praise. Notice, first of all, point one there, because of who He is. Because of who He is. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, the Lion is a symbol of strength, of majesty, of sovereignty, of dignity, of courage, of authority, intelligence, confidence, victory, I mean, you just kind of, you could just think about, when we think about the lion and the king of the jungle, the king of beasts, his power, his authority, his, his ability, you, you see that imagery coming out here. Actually, if we want to write down Genesis chapter 49 verses 9 to 10, this is where we get the idea of Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the David line. This is the Judah line. And it's from that line that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. And that's how he gets this, this title. It's interesting here that in the Revelation account, this is the only time he's referred to as a lion. The other times he's referred to as the lamb. Now he's referred to as a lion because he is sovereign. He is going to judge. He is the king. He's going to judge the world. But it seems like the lamb is the one that takes precedent because it is through weakness that victory is realized. And isn't it just like God to take the weakest animal we think about a meek and mild lamb and use that imagery to speak of the one who is going to be victorious, the one who's going to reign and rule. It's a tremendous picture. Notice, secondly, he is the root of David. This is, this is drawn out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, just for one example. And the idea of him being the root of David, it speaks of his royalty and his preexistence and eternality, that he is the existent, the preexistent eternal root and offspring of David. He existed before David and after David. He's the root and the offspring of David. The idea here seems to be from, some of you probably experienced this, where you wanted to cut down a tree and the next year it sprouted and you couldn't get rid of that thing. It just kept coming back. That's the idea of a tree that's been cut down and yet comes back to life. He's the root of David. Third, he is the lamb in verse 6. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The word lamb here is found, the word that's used for lamb here is found exclusively in the book of Revelation and always refers to the reigning, resurrected, victorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now notice the image here. Seven, we know, is the number of perfection. He has seven horns. Horns speak of power. They think of, they refer to kingly courage. Think of the animals that you know of, that one species of that animal has horns and one does not. Maybe the quickest image you come to is, is, is the cow, the herd, the, the steer, the bull. Now we respect them all because they're big. They, they have a lot of mass to them. They can hurt us quickly. 
But which do we respect more, the one with the horns or one without? Man, those guys have those big old horns sticking out there. Man, we don't even want to get clear. I mean, we don't want to get near those guys. We want to stay way away from them. And so we have here the idea of fear. But in our Lord's sense, in the Lamb's sense, it's fear, it's healthy fear and respect. But if we think about His power, seven horns, perfect power, perfect authority. He is omnipotent. When we think about omnipotent, that means all-powerful. Okay, he has seven horns. Now, he also has seven eyes. Seven, the number of perfection. Eyes speak of wisdom and insight. Seven eyes. Perfect wisdom. Perfect sight. Perfect insight. He is omniscient. He sees all. That's the message here. Now, what's amazing here is even though the Lamb is the meekest of the pictures here, He is the one that is victorious. He is listed as the one that is victorious. And notice, He truly is pictured as not just the king of the jungle, He is the king of all. He's not just a branch of a family tree, He's the root of David. And He's not just a lamb, He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John now sees this one, this lamb. Notice, He has been slain, but he's standing and he's erect there and he's ready to do this deal. The second reason why that we worship the Lord is because of where he is. Because of where he is. And what we find here, what's exciting of this, the way John puts all this together, in one fantastic revelation, with a few carefully chosen words, John portrays for us in just a few words the central and focused theme of the New Testament. The way to victory is through sacrifice. We think about in our land the way to victory is with power, with tanks and bombs and military might and strength. Jesus says, and Jesus illustrates for us, the way to victory is through sacrifice. Now just for a moment, let me ask you to think about and then we're going to expand on this because of where he is. I want us to think about that verse in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and how that applies to us. Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The way to victory, the way to walk in faith and to walk in grace with God, victory is through sacrifice. And when we give ourselves over to God and we sacrifice ourselves to Him as living sacrifices, not dead ones, living sacrifices, then He's able to take us, use us, fill us, mold us, and shape us to be the people He wants us to be. And we can know His will. We can worship Him in power and in strength. And victory comes through sacrifice. The way to victory is through meekness and through sacrifice. A lot of times, the way you win an argument with somebody who disagrees with you is not by getting louder and louder and showing your muscles and ready to pop them in the mouth. The way to victory is through weakness and meekness. Weakness in the power of God through sacrifice. And if you will just submit yourself to God 
and let Him be your strength, you will see victory more and more often. All right, we worship Him secondly here because of where He is. He's in heaven. And what's exciting here is, as we think about this, we, we know all this, but He's in heaven. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. He's not on the cross. He's in heaven. He's not in a tomb. He's in heaven. And He is the Lamb. The living, reigning, resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's in the midst of those in heaven. And how many times have we found this already and we'll find it again. And you'll see this as you read through your Bible how Jesus is in the midst. Even at 12 years age, 12 years of age, remember when Joseph and Mary left town heading back home thinking Jesus was with the family and, and they find out he's not there. And when, he, when they come back to town and they find him in the midst of those lawyers, those teachers of the law. And he was sharing with them, confounding them. It's a very common place for Jesus to be found. Thirdly, he is the exalted Lord who is at the throne. Let her see there we worship him because, or number three there, we worship him because of what he is able to do. Notice he is able to take this scroll. Look at verse seven and eight. And so then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And so he is able to take this scroll from the one. He's also, notice, he's also able to stop the crying. Now it's the angel or it's the elder that tells him not to cry, but it's Jesus that stops the crying. In fact, two more times in the Revelation book, we're going to find that Jesus wipes away every tear from their eyes. And there's not going to be any more pain, not going to be any more sorrow. The former things are passed away. And the grammar there, the construction of that phrase means He's going to wipe away every single tear from your eyes. And so Jesus is the one that stops the crying. Let her see there, He causes worship to take place. Now something else is just a little bit of an interesting little tidbit here about those 24, excuse me, the, the four living creatures that we referred to either earlier. They also, not only do they demonstrate the omniscience and the power and, and, and the, just the abilities and the attributes of God, they also are prompters of worship. 